We're in Philippians again this morning, so if you've got a Bible in front of you, we're looking at chapter 2 from verse 12. Now this, um, this chapter that we're looking at this morning, or this part of a chapter, is really in two sections. The first part is sort of quite dense, there's quite a lot of teaching in there, quite a lot of really practical stuff. The second part is really quite lettery, by which I mean it's very obvious that it's part of a letter, it's Paul talking about people and those kind of situations. There's probably about five sermons in the passage, so I'm only going to tackle the first bit, though I am going to read the whole of the passage. Because I think God can speak to us through scripture just by reading it. So you may find that he says nothing at all to you through anything I say, yet speaks to you through the reading of scripture in the second half. It's more than likely, actually. So, let's have a look. Philippians 2, reading from verse 12 to the end of the chapter, page 1114. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show you genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you, and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour people like him. Because he almost died for the work of Christ, he risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Okay, let's pray, shall we? Lord, would you open our hearts to you this morning? Lord, we've been singing about being filled, been singing about coming to you broken. I don't know how each of us are this morning, but I guess all of us carry within us brokenness. Lord, it's only your power, it's only your love that can transform. And so, Lord, we pray as we open this passage of Scripture that talks about very practical stuff of life, that you, by your power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, will do a work in us today. Lord, help us to grow in your likeness. 
We ask it in your name. Amen. I wonder if you ever lay awake at night and feel alone. Just say that again. I wonder if you ever lay awake at night and feel alone. Nice cheery start. But I guess we all do, don't we? There was a a French philosopher called Descartes, very philosophical this morning, and he came up with this line, I think, therefore I am. And when you're laid in bed at night, when it's dark and you're there by yourself, there is just you and there is God. There is just you and there is God. Much of the daytime, though, we spend our lives filled with other stuff, don't we? We fill it perhaps with people or with work or with community, or community coming to church, or going shopping, or putting the telly on, or putting the radio on, or on the internet, and we bombard ourselves with other people's noise in our lives. Yet at the end of every day, when it goes dark, when we're laid in bed, there is us, and there is God. Who is ultimately responsible for your relationship with God? Go on, you can answer that. Yourself. How is it this morning, you don't have to answer this one, your relationship with God? How is that key relationship, that relationship that is so central to our existence? The early Methodists at the time of John Wesley used to meet um, weekly in their class meetings and they used to ask one another this question. How is it with your soul? How is it with that innermost part of your being? How is it when the dark of night descends and there's just you and there is God. Keep that question in mind as we go through this passage this morning. Verse 12, therefore. Therefore is an important word for Paul because what he does is he uses this word to link one section of the letter with another one. If you were here last week, John was taking us through that great passage about imitating Christ's humility. And John was asking us that question, you know, have we got an attitude problem? And we were looking at how um, we need to have the same humility, that same humble attitude as Christ, who was obedient to his Father's will. And so Paul says, because of all that, therefore, start living this out. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The church in Philippi is not to become a Paul-centered church. Not to become a church that is based on Paul's, primarily his teaching, on his writing, on, on his personality. Important as Paul was as an apostle... This church is to become a Jesus-centered church. See what he says in there. As you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Paul is not the critical factor in the life of the church in Philippi. You know, God gives us good things, doesn't he? He gives us things that enable us to live the Christian life so that we can bless one another. You know, who is blessed by reading Christian books? Many of us, yeah. I'm not going to ask who is blessed by sermons on a Sunday, because you might all sit on your hands. Who is blessed by fellowship with one another? Who is blessed by small groups? I would guess many of us receive blessings through those things. Are those things absolutely critical for your relationship with the Lord? Are they critical or are they helpful? Helpful. There is only one thing that's critical with your relationship with God, and that is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. How is it with your soul? this morning. And Paul says, keep working out your salvation. I don't know when I read that, but that often sells alarm bells ringing to me. Keep working out your salvation. 
You know, I thought salvation was all of grace. You know, Paul wrote the book of Romans, and he goes on and on and on about how salvation is about grace and faith in Christ alone. And here he says, work out your salvation. But he's not talking about working towards salvation. He's talking about what are the effects of your salvation in your life. Let's start working that out. Let's tease out what this means. And he says, do this with fear and trembling. You know, the call to Christian discipleship is not something we should take lightly. When Jesus says, follow me, it's not something we, we sort of do on a whim. and think, oh, that sounds like a, a good idea. It's something that requires a lot of thought, a lot of prayer, a lot of um, sort of effort on our part. It doesn't mean it's heavy going. It doesn't mean it's not fun. It doesn't mean that we're called to a life that is tedious. We are called to the most exciting life because Jesus has called us to follow. But it's something serious. But, you know, sometimes I think there is a danger in the Christian life that we think we're saved by grace, so that means we adopt this way of being. We sit in our spiritual hammock in the Maldives and we sway gently in the breeze. That's not me, by the way. <laughs> and I love this quote, the hammock is not the only place to secure the doctrine of grace. The hammock is not the only place. You know, grace how God has saved us through what Jesus has done means that we are now free to work out what it means to be saved. We're not working towards it. We've already got there. We're already in relationship with God. But now we work out what this means. But then he moves on. This is what I really want to focus on this morning. Do everything without complaining or arguing that you may become blameless and pure. Do you like that verse? <laughs> Do everything without complaining or arguing. When Jesus becomes Lord of our lives, what happens is the number one spot in our lives changes. It goes from being us at number one to Jesus becoming Lord. You know, one of the earliest Christian sort of confessions of faith was simply, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is in the number one spot. What does that advertise? L'Oreal. L'Oreal what? Shampoo. Something close to my heart. When did that advert first come into being? Come on, anybody? When? No. Correct. 1973, before I was born, that advert existed. Because I'm worth it. But in that phrase that they use to advertise shampoo... I think there's a lot of summing up of contemporary feeling about life. And it's the kind of Western-style life that says, I am entitled to things. I live a life of entitlement. I deserve the best. I deserve it now. I deserve to be treated in a particular way. I deserve a wonderful house, car, clothes, job, whatever it goes into. And our country's massive debt problem, you know, our personal debt problem, I think is a symptom of a society that says you can have absolutely everything and you can have it now. Because you're worth it. Because you're worth it. But what happens when something goes wrong? What happens when life is sort of peeled away at the seams and things don't tell us that we're worth it? What happens then? We went out for lunch um, a couple of weekends ago and it was with some friends um, who live on the edge of the Peak District and it was also a friend of mine I've not seen for a decade. I was at the Nazarene College with him years ago. And he was over from Singapore. So we'd all got together and we had lunch. Um, 
Now, I ordered some chicken something or other that was really nice. And then Claire ordered a burger. It wasn't quite that large. <laughs> but that is the world's most expensive burger, if you, if you happen to want to know. It looks disgusting, doesn't it? But anyway, Claire ordered this burger. And it came with sort of, you know how burgers tend to arrive these days, with a sense of drama and theatre? You know, they're, they're sort of piled high, and they have a flag in the top, and they, they look the part. Well, this burger arrived, and um, Claire started eating it. But there was a problem with it. The lettuce on the burger had been washed, but not dried. Imagine the travesty. <laughs> and so what happened? She was eating this burger, and the bread on the top... Do you want me to blank that? I think some of you are looking a bit queasy. <laughs> but the, the bread on the top of this burger had become really soggy and not very nice, and it was spoiling Claire's enjoyment. Do you know what my first response was? No, it wasn't actually. It was the opposite. <laughs> Go on. Send it back. Are you going to complain? Are you going to send it back? But then one of my friends, she turned to, to me and said, you know, if Claire does that, it'll actually spoil our meal. Because we're all eating together at the moment. We're enjoying it. All right, you've got a bit of damp lettuce. Not the best. But is it really serious? So actually, we didn't send it back. And we didn't complain, we just got on with it. But you know, Paul here is not talking about how to behave in a restaurant. Paul here is not talking about what happens when there's a pothole in the road and you start complaining to the council. He's not talking even about what we do when it continues to rain indefinitely when we think that Noah is going to suddenly appear. But he says something quite different. Do everything without complaining or arguing. It's that word everything. You know, I take a bit of issue with, really. How can you be serious, Paul? Do everything without complaining. Surely there must be wriggle room here. But the Greek word, the original word that Paul uses, you know, when we talk about complaining, it's actually a bit of an active word. Because you can think about complaining in a restaurant, complaining in a hotel, you go and you do something about it. The Greek word is a very passive word for complaining here. It's about secret talk of grumbling. You know that kind of background conversations that you have with people where you chunter on, and we all do it, I do it, and we moan about things, yet we have absolutely no inclination to do anything about it whatsoever. Why does Paul draw this kind of thing to the forefront? Why does he address this as an issue? Why does it get um, special mention? That kind of complaining is contagious. And it's actually self-contagious. You know, the more you do it, the more you find yourself doing it. Now, I want to make this really clear. Paul is not talking here about addressing problems. He's not talking about putting your head above the parapet and saying, you know, something is wrong. Paul has no problems in doing that. You read Galatians or the Corinthian letters, he will address problems in churches. But he's talking about this secret talk, this secret chuntering on in the background of complaining. I came across a story this week. This is, nothing, this is not my story, so don't, don't worry. But I'll just read this out to you. It says, I had a boss that, shall we say, was unpopular. My co-workers and I found it tough working with him, and we complained ceaselessly about him. It got to the point where we couldn't start a meeting, have lunch, or even go out for a coffee without spending half an hour complaining about him. We whined about his attitude, his stupidity, his meddling, his spinelessness. Even his dress sense came under fire. But did we ever tell him? No. 
While we were complaining and moaning to ourselves, he blithely went on as usual, because nobody ever complained to him. Then it went on. Do you know what? Nothing whatsoever changed. Two things had happened in that story. The first thing was this. The complainers had set themselves up as judge and jury over that man. Now, it may have started off with something valid that they wanted to moan about, but quickly it became contagious. And it sort of went out into all kinds of things that were none of their business, like what kinds of clothes he wore. And it went on and on and on. And what did it do to them? It sapped them of joy. When they went out for a group, when they went out for coffee, they were socially paralyzed. They couldn't speak to one another without, first of all, having a good whinge and moan about this man. Second thing, that complaining was never, ever going to lead to transformation. They weren't going to put their head above the parapet and say, hold on, there's an issue here. It was just whinging to one another. Paul is saying, don't grin and bear problems. He's just saying, stop complaining. But you know, complaining can very easily become our diet in life. I find myself go through phases when I find myself complaining about things that I am never, ever going to address. It can seep into the life of churches. I don't know if you've ever found this. You come out of a service, and you're talking to somebody, and you say something like, why do we have to sing all those old, new, loud, quiet songs, delete according to your preference? Why does the sermon have to be so long, short, boring, heavy-going, or lightweight? Again, delete according to your preference. And then you start to spill out, and you do other things, and you start looking around the church building, and this blind comes in for, you know, some kind of complaining. Why does it have to be so whatever it is? Or, or the carpet comes in for criticism, or whatever, and then you start complaining about things that don't actually exist. Have you found yourself doing that? Wouldn't it be good if we could have a break in the service for refreshments, but they'd only give us weak tea if we did? Surely we could have croissants or pastries or a full English. You know, and it goes on and on and on because complaining is self-contagious. It just keeps going and going and going. But you know, it never solves anything. It just grows on us like a fungus on dead wood. The people of Israel back in the Old Testament, when, um, during the time of the Exodus, when Moses had led them out of Egypt, out of captivity, they made complaining into an art form. They spent time after time moaning about what God had done. They'd seen God deliver them. I don't know if you know the story, but they'd come out of Egypt. The Red Sea had parted in front of them. They'd had a pillar of fire in front of them in the day and a pillar of cloud at night. The visible presence of God. They'd had provision of food through manna and quails. And yet, what did they do? They moaned and they grumbled. They whinged and they whined. They whinged about the leadership of Moses and it became toxic. They ended up building a golden calf to worship. And worse than that, they ended up wandering around for 40 years and not inheriting the land that God had promised them. That first generation didn't inherit. It had to go on to the next one. Complaining can be toxic. Complaining can damage us because we become unaccountable judges of a situation or a person that we have no intention of confronting. Matthew 7, let's listen to what Jesus says. Judge not that you will not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. 
First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to, spe- to take the speck out of your brother's eye. When Paul talks about complaining, what's his remedy? Bin it. Get rid of it. Do something other than the complaining. Otherwise, we look at the stories of Scripture and we find that we may miss out on the blessings that God has for us. You know, we can easily have thought our I'm worth it slogan gives us the right to become a complainer if things don't go our own way. But I've got this image of God breaking in and saying, you know, you are worth it, but in a very different kind of way than perhaps you're thinking. You are worth more than living a life that is full of complaining. You're worth so much to the Lord that he gave his only son to die for you so that we can have a better and a bigger vision of what it means to follow Jesus. So I want to ask you a question. Are you a complainer this morning? I'm asking myself the same question, and I'm finding that the answer is not one I particularly like a lot of the time. But are you a complainer? Will you let Jesus become Lord of that complaining? Will you stop it from becoming self-toxic and self-harming as we turn in on ourselves and just find more and more to moan and whinge about? You know, we can't do that by ourselves, can we? What did Richard say at the beginning of the service? It's through the power of God by his spirit that he can transform us. You know, Jesus has a better soundtrack to our life than that of our own rumblings and grumblings and moanings. Jesus has a better soundtrack to our life than one that is so toxic and negative. So will you do what Paul asks here? Will you put it down? And will you look to the brighter vision that Paul gives us of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? Look at this. So that you become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. The Bible in front of you says sky. That's a little bit limp as a translation. I think universe is a bit more impressive. But Paul has gone from um, talking about this, this life that is all wrapped up in ourselves, looking inwardly, you know, sort of inverting into ourselves, thinking it's all about me and complaining and getting those things that I deserve. And he throws it wide open and says, look, you can become like a star in the universe. You can shine for Jesus in a way that is totally different to the way you're living right now. Years ago, I was on a a wet camp in North Wales. I was a a youth leader on it. And it was sort of midsummer, and it was in Crickieth. Anyone been to Crickieth? Yeah. If you go to Crickieth, outside Crickieth at night, um, when it's dark, it really is dark. Because there's not much light pollution around there. There's no big towns or anything. So we were stood out late one evening, and it's totally clear sky. That's probably the miracle in itself in North Wales. But it was totally clear, the sky. And there was a meteor shower at the time. And you could see these shooting stars going across. It was amazing, going across the sky. And they were incredibly bright and incredibly vivid. You know, Paul says, look up. That is the kind of thing you can be. Forget the soundtrack of grumbling. Think that you can be stars in the universe, shining in this depraved and crooked generation. Paul says, be visible as disciples of Jesus. Verse 16, as you hold on to the word of life. As we press into God's word, so our outlook on life changes. 
I asked that question earlier on. How is your soul? How is that innermost part of you? Is the innermost part of you full of complaining? Or is it full of light and life and the freedom of the gospel as the power of Christ transforms you? Because Paul says in verse 16 that he wants to be able to boast about what God has been doing in this church. He wants to be able to look at the church in Philippi and say, there is massive evidence here that this church has transformed and are shining for Jesus. We had some friends around at Christmas and I decided to make a cake. You must think all I do is make cakes in my spare time. It's not quite true, but I did. I made a cake. It was a carrot cake. I never made one before. So I'm there grating all these bag of carrots and putting all the ingredients in and I put it in the oven and I did it. When I cook, I have to do it according to instructions. I'm not very good if I don't. So it's like some kind of scientific experiment. And I put it in the oven and it rises perfectly. I get it out. I leave it to cool. Our friends turn into the car park. So I think, I'll just turn this cake out and put it on a plate and I can be proud. What happens? It collapses and just goes everywhere. So I'm ashamed. And I have to grab all these bits of cake and I open the oven and shove it back in the (laughs) oven and leave it in there so they don't even see it until they've gone. Paul doesn't want the Philippian church to be like that cake. He wants them to be something he can boast about in Christ. Not a church that is good for so long but then falls apart, but something that will continue until the day when Jesus returns. Paul says he wants to be able to boast in their development. You know, as a minister, there is nothing more, I suppose, rewarding would be the word than seeing somebody go on with Jesus, you know, come to faith, go on with Jesus, and to see lasting fruit in people's lives. Now, this is what Paul wants to see here for this church. He wants to see that change is here to stay. So that he can say in verse 17, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Yeah, the Lord wants to rejoice over your life this morning. He wants to rejoice over my life. And so I want to bring us back to that question, how is it with your soul today? How is it deep inside of you? How will it be when the lights go out tonight and you're laid there? Is the light of the gospel shining in your life? Is the Holy Spirit doing a work? Is the soundtrack of your life one of grumbling and moaning of self-entitlement? Or is it about resting in who you are in Christ? What is it? I can't answer that for you. The person sat next to you cannot answer it. That is between you and God this morning. But how is it? There may be some of us this morning who actually we have settled for a life of complaining. And this morning actually God wants to call you out of that. And so in just in a few moments, going to ask the musicians to to come back um, to the front. We're actually going to offer prayer as we sing our last couple of songs. And I think that's really important because perhaps if you have settled for the complaining soundtrack, while there's music going on, it's the time to go and ask for prayer. That God will minister to you and just help that to be released um, in your life. I'm going to go for prayer first, because I do it, okay? But if you want prayer, just come to the back corner and somebody will pray with you. Can I pray with all of us? Then I'm going to invite the musicians to come up. Dear Lord, you, you call us to a future that is something beyond what we're living right now. Lord, we are often tied up in little knots, complaining in our own world, and you call us to be stars in the universe. Lord, I want to pray that you will help us to capture that vision of who you call us to be today. 
that we may shine for the gospel, that our lives may, may draw other people to you, and that we may become all that you have called us to be. Lord, if we have settled for anything less than that, help us this morning to, to want to put that down. Lord, we can't do that on our own. We need your power. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to do a work among us so that on the day that you return, on that day when everything changes, that you will see that we have been faithful. So Lord, do a work in us, we ask. For Jesus' sake. Amen.